you know, normally a copywriter's like, no, this is, you can't tell me what, a computer can't tell me what to do. I'm, a, I'm an artist. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Rockstar CMO FM. The M is for marketing and the F is for well you decide. As you're probably wondering, does the world need another effing marketing podcast? I'm your host, Ian Truscott, and this podcast serves as my excuse to chat with marketing friends old and new that I've met through my career, leading marketing teams and as a trusted client advisor, and hopefully share some marketing street knowledge that will bring out the rockstar in you. Come say hello. You can find this podcast at Rockstar CMO on Twitter and LinkedIn. This episode is recorded on Friday the 7th of April, and wherever you are, I hope you've had a good week and you are well, safe, and staying as sane as you feel you need to be. In today's episode, One to Watch, One Hit Wonder, or Wonder Wall Returns, I chat to Margot Bloomstein, a leading voice in content strategy, about her new book, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. And of course, I complete the week in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar with Robert Rose for a chat and a cocktail. Right, let's get started, shall we? On to our first segment, where we discuss a marketing technique or trend and decide if it's a one to watch, a one hit wonder or wonder wall. As you might have heard last week, my regular co-host Jeff Clark has taken the week off and I'm delighted that our guest from episode 53, David Maguire, creative director and co-owner of Radix Communications, has taken his virtual chair. Let's find out what's hot or not this week. Welcome, David, to unhit to hang on. Let me get this right. To one to watch, one hit wonder, or wonderful slot, uh, vacated by uh, Jeff Clark this week. There's big shoes to fill. I'm you know, slightly slightly nervous. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm here. I'm checking my back. I've got twelve on my back. I'm here as the substitute. <laughs> You're on super sub, um, and uh, and also we're inspired by Irene Naircorn Kane, who is a friend of the show, our listener. I don't want to say plural because I don't want to assume, you know. Wow. So. Check your podcast out with a listener and everything. Yeah, exactly. I just, just put mine in the ether and nobody. <laughs> and, and Irene's um, brilliant because she's often making comments on LinkedIn and suggesting things for us to talk about. And one of the things she uh, she suggested is that we tackle the, the topic of copy that's written by artificial intelligence. And as I normally hand over to Jeff, the, uh, the the grenade of the topic over to him, I say, what say you? So what say you, David? Well, it's easy for me to say, oh, a computer will never be able to write as well as I can. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, you know, and that's what um, every profession <laughs> that's had their job <laughs> taken over by AI said <laughs> immediately before it happened okay yeah yeah um and the truth is that they're it's a thing that's coming they get you know they're, they're pouring money into it resource into it and, and they're getting better and better at it mm -hmm. um and there are some areas now where ai written copy outperforms human written copy um really yeah, yeah. So not for for long form stuff, but mm -hmm. um, I spoke to um, Parry Malm, who's the CEO at uh, at Frazy, mm -hmm. um, and and he was telling me about this. But there are 
um, there are uh, certain fast food companies that you've probably heard of whose mm-hmm. um, whose email subject lines now uh, on their direct mail are written by computer. Wow. And right. the what will happen is now they claim that their email subject lines, the computer-written ones, will outperform a human-written one mm-hmm. eight out of ten times, and wow. the computer can tell you which is the other two. Wow. So <laughs> yeah. it, is, it, is, it is coming. But I, I think there are a couple of ways that people are, are viewing it. So mm-hmm. there is the, the big question about will computers replace people and when mm-hmm. um and that's a tricky thing and i think you know certainly for kind of the content that, that that i that i work in there are certain aspects that writers won't have to do for very much longer yeah but i think that's a long way off but then the other stuff that's that's clever is about how you use ai as a tool within copywriting right and that's something where in some ways, it, it's not here straight away. You know, it's it's probably not there right now. But that's mm-hmm. something that um, you know that really is pretty promising. Yeah. So so augmented copy, AI augmented copy. Yeah. So when you talk to people in the the AI writing sector, you know, mm-hmm. the example that, that that people would say is, if you think about the way that now an architect would use CAD. You know, where they used to do everything by hand yeah. or where, you know, a designer would use, you know, Photoshop or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, where a lot of the the repetitive kind of grunt work gets picked yeah. up by the computer. Um, yeah. What they talk about is people using um, AI as that kind of that kind of assistance so mm-hmm. that then the human's doing the bit the human is really good yeah. at, which is, again, I think what people talk about in, ev- in every area where they bring mm-hmm. in an element of, yeah. um, of AI, right? I mean, there, uh, there's, an ele- there's a, um, a platform called, I think, Acrolinks, mm-hmm. where they use the AI instead of doing the writing, if mm-hmm. I've understood it right, they use the AI as um, almost like the brand manager. Oh wow. so, they, so they use mm. so they use the AI to check that the that the writing you know from the from the document governance standpoint so right. you know to right. check that that it's in keeping with um you know with the brand values and the voice yeah. and tone and and all yeah. of these kinds of things and they kind of get the AI to run a pass over it that right. way and that's something i could see happening quite so quite so like a grammarly for editorial guidelines yeah yeah. yeah, pretty much. And, and in some senses, Grammarly kind of does that mm. already. Like when you look at the premium version of Grammarly, yeah. you know, you've got the, do you want the super formal version? Do you want the kind yeah. of businessy version? Do you want the yeah. super informal version? And like, yeah. you know, you can begin to tune Grammarly to voice and tone already. Yeah. And it's something that I've got to say I was really surprised by. But earlier this year, we did a trial within Radix. So Radix, mm-hmm. we have uh, we have a dozen copywriters mm-hmm. all working on B two B content, and it was suggested within the team, um, you know, that maybe having Grammarly run a 
you know, a second eye, if you like, you know, mm-hmm. to assist the reviewing um, of that content. Because everything that we write gets reviewed by another writer. Yeah. But to, re- to assist in that process. And so they, um, a number of, of team members volunteered to, to do a trial. And I, I, you know, normally a copywriter's like, no, this is, you can't tell me what, a computer can't tell me what to do. I'm, a, I'm an artist. Um, yes. And actually the thing that really surprised me, they came back and went, do you know what? Some of the things that Grammarly does is really annoying, but mm-hmm. if you tweak the settings and turn those things off, it's really, really useful. Where so are you happens. on Oxford commas? I mean, that's, a Grammarly, that's what Grammarly does to me. It makes me use Oxford commas. Well, I knew I liked Grammarly for for a reason. <laughs> I, I'm pro. I generally speaking, I am Oxford comma and n dash. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, where unless I'm writing American, in which case I'm m dash. But um, yeah. but yeah, it, it, interesting. It's one of the things where I um, have the lovely job of hosting the National Copywriting Conference. And oh, wow. I, uh, a couple of years ago, back when it was you know all in. Um, all in person. Yes. Um, we were in the, the crystal in Docklands and, and, yeah. um, and, and right at the end of the day, Doug Kessler, you know, you know yeah, Doug, yeah, yeah, Doug yeah. Kessler stood up. I don't know him. I know of him. Yeah. I can't oh, claim to know him. Oh, you should meet Doug. Doug's awesome. Um, yeah. but yeah, Doug Kessler from Velocity Partners. Yeah. Uh, he was like one of our keynote speakers. And at the end of the day, yeah. he stood up and went, right, let's settle this once and for all. Who's pro Oxford comma? <laughs> and you had and you had hundreds of copywriters from all over the UK doing a show of hands on the Oxford wow. comma. And they were yeah. two thirds in favor, one third against. Wow. Was there a fight? <laughs> Splurs. All these, all these copywriting nerds in the in the car park afterwards with flip <laughs> their pencils, broken bottles. Yeah. I think they biros. Cordial, broken biros. <laughs> so, so, so your experience with, with Grammarly is that, that you could tune it, and it is it is getting that way that it's a it's a writer's assistant. Is that we is that where we're saying that? the AI is in terms of copy, like it's, it's an assistant. I think so. And I think that's where it will, you know, I, I, yeah. that's where it, most of the AI empowered tech platforms, yeah. whether it's real AI machine learning or whether it's a yeah. thing that they put the name AI on. Yeah. Um, but that's where most of that writing tech seems to be closest mm-hmm. to having a real, yeah. having a real impact. So, um, Funny enough, there, there was a, a discussion on Twitter among copywriters just just the mm. other day, and you know, and and someone had been through sort of all of them, you know, with an open mind, wow. kind of going, "What will help me?" And yeah. the um, their findings were some of this stuff's pretty helpful, but yeah. it's still really clunky. Yeah, and that's kind of how I feel about Grammarly. Like some of the things yeah. it does are really helpful and really yeah. useful. Yeah. And then a lot of the time it's really annoying. So yeah. I have to, I can't work with Grammarly on. I have to turn Grammarly off, right. do my writing, and yeah, then yeah. turn Grammarly on and have it. And then, yeah, I must admit that's, then that's consider all of the things. Yeah, that's that's how I tend to work anyway with uh, with with edits, but certainly with Grammarly is to is to write raw and then try and and then work with it afterwards. Well, um, so have you tried any of those tools where you can put in an idea or a sentence or something like that and it creates a whole article? Have you tried any of those things? I haven't, no. I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen articles that are, 
I've seen news articles now that, yeah. that are computer written, yeah. and, you know, like football reports and stuff, yeah. and yeah. you know, and they're fine. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd hate to get to this situation where you've got a writer who's got a computer writing all the copy and you've got yeah, a computer yeah. reading all the copy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that, um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen any of, uh, of those yet where they're able to really do anything long form that's right. really going to um, grip right. a reader. I think, I mean, I, I, I mean, that's sort of coming, isn't it? But I, I like the analogy that you were sort of making earlier on, which is that the, the grunt work will be taken away. And right now that grunt work is fairly low level, that, that sort of Grammarly author assistant writing subject matter lines. Also, you know, the Lately product, um, I chatted to a chat from there last week where, where it can derive... Um, it can derive tweets and, and social posting out of an article, bit like your email um, subject line example. Mm. Um, so, so they're starting to do some of the periphery kind of boring bits around actually writing the article and can help us m um, improve our editorial, right, from a, from a branding perspective and from a Grammarly, whatever you would call that perspective. But do you think then that the future is going to be that we're more the designers? Like, a, like if you look at uh, the way that cars are made, for example, that the, the humans do the design and then the factory goes off and makes the thing. Do you think we're going to get into that situation? Maybe eventually. I, I think there's a couple of things about this. So, um, one of them is i you know i think over time you know the the ai will do more and more stuff and it is that sort of thing where i think copywriters have to move up the value chain mm -hmm. like that yeah. you know that's that's the thing where more and more experienced you know writers need to be more both from their point of view and you know yeah it's helpful from the the marketer's yeah. point of view to yeah. have a to have a copywriter that's you know because a computer's not going to ask you why does your audience care about this yeah yeah they're not, yeah, you know, not going to push back and and yeah. you know, and say oh it's got a triple widget flange well, okay so what yeah, you know? yeah 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 and and a lot of my job is finding really polite ways to ask so what who <laughs> 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 um, for because, sure because as the writer my sort of privilege outside is to kind of be the um, the avatar for the for the audience, mm. to be the avatar for mm. the reader, and to yeah. make sure that I'm in a position where, based upon the brief, I can say something to the reader, to the audience, yeah. the decision maker, yeah. that they're going to understand and that they're going to care about. Yeah, and and sometimes that means I, you know, I have to ask some pretty big dumb questions yeah yeah um, and knowing when to ask that and when not to ask that you know is something that i don't think a computer can no i like i like that because i mean we i think we've talked about b2b copy in the past and you could almost uh, you could see you could envision a situation where an ai bot looks at the three websites of your competitors and then spins you out a website website copy that pretty much fits into your category but would do none of those things that you just <laughs> you can't see david's face but you see what i mean and and that's the well, difference isn't it is that that differentiation is the human touch isn't it yeah i mean let's let's be honest ian so many b2b websites look like <laughs> they are an average of every, everything else in in their sector, right? Like, like, yeah. like they kind of went, 
you know, and, and I'm not even saying actually they kind of went often. Yeah. You know, not necessarily the marketer, but the stakeholders will yeah. go, see this one, see that one, do something yeah. that looks like it's kind of in between these two. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and, and that's why everything in a, you know, in, in, a, in a sector or, you know, yeah. everything in a, in, a, in a certain vertical, they, you know, there are often very few outliers. They all seem to kind of coalesce to the yeah. same kind of message and the same yeah, kind I of language, remember. whether it makes any sense to the audience or, yeah, I can't or remember not. Exactly. I, I can imagine B2B would really love yeah. that kind of robot. I, I can't remember if it was in a conversation we had on the podcast or whether it was a conversation we had outside, but I think that I mentioned that I, I actually, in, in one gig, I cut and pasted just the copy not the branding of the of the three main messages on the home page of of like the, the the vendor i was with and two of our main competitors and i asked some of the executives to identify which one was ours and you know they couldn't <laughs> and that and that sort of tells you everything <laughs> right i'm there, gonna right? do that to a client one day <laughs> one day i'm gonna be brave enough to do that to a client. <laughs> but so but so yeah so i think it sounds like we as humans need to avoid writing like robots as much as, <laughs> as much as anything else <laughs> well you like to think that that's the progress that's what yeah. b2b as a market is progress is yeah. progressing away from yeah. the fact that, that it's not just a business saying generic business things. Yeah. But it's actually talking to people about what they care yeah. about and, 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 and talking to people about, um, you know, the, the stuff that actually matters and, and communicating yeah. human to human because yeah. a business doesn't read your stuff. A person yeah. in a business Absolutely. reads your stuff. You know, Absolutely. You know, but something that ABM, you know, something that AI could do well Mm-hmm. eventually is abm i think where you know one of the things that, that that my team does is you know we'll get a um we'll work on an abm campaign where there's a here you know there are a set of hero assets there's a yeah. landing page with various pieces of curated content yeah and um and then there'll be the list of accounts that they want it to go out for mm. and then that you know and we'll have the information on what's important to this account um and which of the you know of these 10 assets which of the which three are we could draw Mm -hmm. their attention to and Mm -hmm. that that kind of thing but those parameters are quite well set here's the vanilla version of the hero asset that needs to be customized a little bit to you know uh, to 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 fit more of this message more of that message more of the other message and it could be something where there's a bit more automation in that so that the yeah. human is doing the thinking about what does the person in this account care about mm-hmm. and then the computer is customizing. They're definitely yeah. not there yet. They can't do that yet. Right. But that would be something that's, that's possible. Yeah, one, yeah. One of the things that worries me about it is, and it's a gap, it's a, a thing that's coming up in you know other industries where AI is taking over to a greater extent, mm-hmm. which is... The simple stuff that AI takes over is the stuff where you train tomorrow's tomorrow's experts. Ah, uh, you know? yes. Tomorrow's tomorrow's brilliant copywriter mm-hmm. learns by adapting this message to yeah. suit yeah that set Good of point. points by by le- the muscle memory of. Okay, yeah. let's look at this. How do we summarize this in two in two lines? Yeah. How do we do the subject line? You know, yeah. and, and and it's things that you that are that's much more widespread. There are other 
industries where there are basically now no training opportunities. Yeah. You have to invent stuff for people to do rather than giving them the simple stuff so they yeah. can progress on to the other stuff. And you know, there aren't enough B2B copywriters as it is. <laughs> and it takes us, you know, a long takes a long time to train a re- takes us five yeah. or six years to train a you know, a, a really good B2B yeah. copywriter. And, mm. you know, one of the things that worries me is will we lose those opportunities when a computer's yeah. doing that? How will someone learn yeah. how to do the job? Yeah. No, that, so that's um, v- all lots of very good points. I should have expected that absolutely from you, David, sitting in this slot. So uh, and, and maybe Jeff is going to have big shoes to fill next week. <laughs> so, and so, so basically you're saying that, um, yes, this is coming. Um, but copywriters need to beware and, and up their game and, and, and write like humans and not like robots. So what, what, are, you, what are we saying? Are we saying this is a, a one to watch, one hit wonder or wonder wall? Well, I don't think the listener will be surprised from what I said. I, don't, I think it's coming and I don't think it's there yet. You right. know? Um, so I think it's one to one watch. To watch. Yeah, excellent. And do you have a song recommendation for us? Yeah, so one to watch. So I kind of figured that that would be a song that was sort of um, under the radar, um, you know, something that people probably won't have heard before. Um, And as we're recording this in, you know, the week of May the 4th and and Star Wars Day, and we're talking about robots, robots writing stuff, uh, robots at work, um, yeah. I, I thought about um, maybe the droids by Sensation Smith, right. um, who's something that people, you know, is uh, you know, a really independent artist people won't have heard before. But if people yeah. kind of like Graham Coxon or some of the wit of like a divine comedy or something, then yeah, people might, All right. might enjoy it. All right. Well, I'll play a little sample of that as we play out. Thank you very much, David. And I'll include a link to it in the show notes if people want to seek out uh, Sensation Smith and the droids. And um, thank you very much for filling in this week, David. I look forward to seeing you soon, mate. Thank you. You're a drone, you're a clone, and you're not in the zone. Knocked off, clocked off, and scared of your boss. Thank you, David. And there you have it. Copy written by the bots is one to watch. And that was The Droids by Sensation Smith. And thank you, friend of the show, Irene Nekon-Kane, Director of Marketing at ExactTag, for suggesting the topic on LinkedIn. And you can find David also on LinkedIn, Twitter, and at Rabbits Communications. And I'll include all his links in the show notes. Right, on to this week's guest. If you're into content marketing or strategy, then you will know, or maybe you should know, Margot Bloomstein. She's an internationally acclaimed speaker, author, and one of the most prominent voices in the content strategy industry. She's the author of Content Strategy at Work and the principal of Appropriate Inc., a brand and content strategy consultancy based in Boston. For more than 20 years, Margot's led workshops, keynoted conferences, and advised marketing teams around the world. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, 
Hello, Margot. Welcome to Rockstar CMO FM. How are you? Thank you so much. I am great. Excited to be talking with you today. Oh, I'm the excited one. I've been following you on Twitter for years. It's a it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. Um, now, I've I've already read out your bio in the in the preamble for this, but for the listeners that don't know you, and I should imagine lots of people do, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Um, well, I've been working in content strategy for uh, about a little more than 20 years now, 21 mm-hmm. years. And um, and over that time, I feel like I've had the opportunity to, to work with a lot of really amazing brands across a wide variety of industries and, and see how our industry has evolved and hopefully helped some of that evolution in, in content strategy as, as content marketing kind of developed as well. And, and as we've grown up within and beside design and user uh-huh. experience design and, and really centered our users and brands more in that process. And, um, and I'm very, very grateful for those opportunities for for so many good conversations with great clients and amazing collaborators. Yeah, yeah. I think I think before I pressed record, we think we may have met each other, but maybe not. But I've definitely been following you for a long time, and I love the your company name, Appropriate Inc. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> How did you come up with that? Yeah, I, I love a good double entendre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think as I was sort of coming up in the industry and and focusing more and more on brand driven content strategy, as I said, I, I kind of started out about twenty ish years ago at uh, at Sapient in their office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was hired into a team of content strategists using wow. the term content strategy. Wow. Yeah. So when folks say is it fairly new? I, I feel like, I mean, geologically speaking, it is new, <laughs> but <laughs> in, in the history of the web industry, not at all. And, yeah. and frankly, in the history of of kind of marketing, I think that many of the, the tenets of content strategy around how we craft a message and curate that message to better meet the needs of both the speaker, the brand mm. maybe, and the audience, some of those um, trends and techniques are not new either. The technology certainly is. Mm-hmm. That is constantly evolving as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think our our responses to what really matters in it and what is most important in it, and frankly, the driving forces within our industry, those things are not necessarily new. But um, yes, yeah, so I was at Sapient for a couple of years, uh, was in-house at, at Timberland, um, the footwear and apparel company mm-hmm. for about a year, and then joined a, a series of mid-sized marketing and web design and development agencies to start their content strategy practices. And over that time, over about a, a decade or so, I think my thinking was evolving alongside the perspectives in our industry where, I mean, around the the late 90s, kind of around the time of the dot-com boom and bust, that was really when the web was was first gaining ground as as kind of the the new platform for Mm -hmm. brochureware, where so many companies were saying, this is who we are, this is all we have to say, so let's throw that up on a website now. Mm. And then... User-centered design started to creep into our thinking and into our processes and um, in user research and really considering the needs of our users mm-hmm. and our audiences, considering their their baggage and their perspectives and um, their, their journeys and pathways to our organizations and beyond our organizations. And that kind of thinking kind of pulled the pendulum in the other 
direction, away from just the idea of brochureware to now saying, well, let's make things that are built entirely around not the needs of our brands, but the needs of our audiences. Yeah. I think that that is a good thing, but not an ideal thing either. Because if you take that, that mindset, that approach within an industry, by all, all given rights, every organization that is targeting the same audience with the same product, like let's say airlines that, yeah. that all serve the same routes at about the same price points, well, then naturally shouldn't their their means of engagement online, their messaging, the way they present themselves visually and verbally, shouldn't that all be the same too? I, I mean, it shouldn't because, no. yeah, yeah, then we're not we're not serving our brands nor our users. No, exactly. and I think, and I think um, with with I mean your example there with airlines. I mean, we're going to break into the meat of it if we're not careful and um, pass the introductions. But um, uh, I think your <laughs> example there with airlines is we all many of us are in tribes, aren't we, around the airlines that we like, and right. and we identify with their values in a different way and and that's that's the story we need to tell with our content strategy isn't it is what's right. going to resonate with my tribe that they're, they're looking for they look to be different to the other tribe that use the other airline um how, who are these people and how do we talk to them right to, to your point about mm-hmm. understanding the audience right and also how do we help those people mm-hmm. realize hey this is here is a brand that resonates with yeah. my interests. How do we put out that flag that says, you know, this is who we are, this is how we are, so that other people can find us, yeah. whether that is potential customers or potential employees to yeah. say, oh, that resonates with me. You're just like me. That's that's the airline for me. That's the airline that I identify with or or the grocer or the, the footwear brand um, that is right for yeah. me. So I think branding and differentiation around brand-driven content strategy. Mm -hmm. That, of course, serves our organizations, but it also serves our audiences. And I think to get to your your original question, (laughs) why appropriate it? I am getting there, really. (laughs) Um, That's because so much of the discussions that I was having with, with designers and developers and writers at the time was around figuring out what is not just right, not just what we like in terms of color scheme or language or um, or even the platforms and channels through which we engage our audiences, but what is most appropriate yeah. for serving their needs and meeting the, the communication goals of our organizational message architecture. So kind of after 10 years or so of having those conversations, that's when I went out on my own and incorporated as appropriate ink. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, I'm going to um, move on to like probably the primary reason why we're, we're chatting because um, you've just, you're a second time author with all this experience that you have and you've just published Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. And we're always talking about trust on this podcast. And I think that relates to what you're talking about being appropriate to your audience. What inspired you to write this book? I think about um, five, six years ago, mm-hmm. I was looking at what was going on in the political arena, first in the US, but then certainly there in, in the UK <laughs> as well and across Europe, and seeing how cynicism was destabilizing so many of our conversations in the political realm Mm -hmm. where um, people were walling themselves off to new information saying that, well, all politicians lie. You can't trust what anybody says and falling prey to 
really the the behavior of cult leaders saying, don't listen to anyone else. Only trust me or only trust the media that also backs me up. Mm -hmm. Don't do your own research. Don't trust the evidence of your own eyes. We have a term for that. That's gaslighting. And I was seeing how gaslighting coupled with cynicism was affecting political conversation and Mm. persuasion. And I wondered if that would matter to my clients because I don't really work too much in the political arena. Mm -hmm. Like most of my clients are in retail and healthcare Mm. and um, some government services and and software and a lot of consumer goods, that type of thing. And, And I wondered if those issues would affect them because when people wall themselves off from new information, They wall themselves off from expertise and marketing is a form of expertise Mm -hmm. and authority. It's Mm -hmm. saying, I'm here, you're not. So let me tell you about this new product or this new service or, or maybe how you can best help yourself here. And, um, and I wondered if it would matter to my, my audiences and my clients. And it turns out, oh, it does. (laughs) The issue of trust and cynicism are so important in whatever industry in which you operate. And if you don't pay attention to those things Mm -hmm. as a marketer, you will suffer from mm. them. And I think that all of our efforts in marketing, all of our investments there are a waste if we don't first look at how to how to empower our audiences, mm-hmm. how to regain their trust, rebuild their confidence yep. in both themselves and us. Yeah, yeah. And we've talked about that on this podcast a few times in a couple of the episodes. And one of the things um, when I'm in a, advising clients or in a, in a marketing leadership position is I always talk about the three things that I think marketing needs to focus on. And I call it art, awareness, revenue, and trust. And because I think often that last one is forgotten and you're not going to get the other two. You're not going to get revenue or awareness unless somebody starts to trust you and they're not going to share your message unless they trust your message. They're not going to, they're not going to um, transact with you unless they trust you. It's an incredibly important job of marketing, isn't it? To drive trust. Right. And I think even before that, they won't take the time to pay attention to you unless they they are able to approach your organization from the position of confidence of saying, all right, let me hear something more. Not I have all the answers. I don't need more information, but tell me more about your company or your products or why I should switch to your brand. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. And in the book, you split the, um, you split trust into into the, the, sorry, the, the way that we need to gain trust into three things, voice, volume, and vulnerability. And I think they're all, and and your book is packed with case studies as well that, that, Mm -hmm. uh, that are brilliant. And I'll ask you about those in a moment, but tell us about those three things and why that were, those three things were the top of mind for you for this particular book. Well, I think as I was seeing this problem around trust and cynicism and how so much marketing was falling flat and sales cycles were taking longer and that wasn't just the fault of the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, I saw this problem and I was trying to find more information about it. And every other book that I could find out there didn't really dig into, well, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. As marketers, can we do anything about yeah. this? And yeah. It turns out we can. And as you mentioned with those case studies, as I was interviewing organizations that had been successful and are successful at cultivating and sustaining trust, it isn't because they don't make mistakes or, and it certainly isn't because they just kind of keep their heads down and and don't share, um, don't engage on social issues or something like that. 
what they do right falls into a a three-part framework. Mm -hmm. They maintain a consistent and familiar voice visually and verbally through Mm -hmm. all their touch points. They do that by investing in good governance models Mm -hmm. um, that go beyond just editorial style guidelines, Mm -hmm. but also get into um, design systems and a contributory model around design systems. Mm -hmm. And I have some thoughts on that. Um, (laughs) Also, they... They invest in offering the right volume of content. Mm-hmm. By volume, I don't mean the loudness no, of it, but, but rather how much they say. The, yeah. the length and level of detail in product descriptions and blog posts, mm-hmm. as well as in imagery. Like, do they create really detailed diagrams mm-hmm. to to explain their products or um, have really uh, rich image galleries mm-hmm. for, for every product and event? Or are they able to convey things more simply mm-hmm. um, in a different kind of visual style? And I looked at examples from both ends of the spectrum there mm-hmm. to see what works for most yeah. brands in terms of fostering confidence and and empowering their audiences to make good decisions um, in which they do have confidence. And then the third section of the book focuses on vulnerability. So how brands can embrace risk to bring their audiences closer, to build greater loyalty, whether they are sharing more, uh, making their values visible and engaging around social issues, or if they are instead vulnerable because they're stumbling back from a really stupid mistake (laughs) or I don't know, the CEO has said or done something horrible or they need to address something that is very real and very horrible about the company itself. I look at, well, what works? What, how do brands develop trust even through those, those really. I, I really enjoyed that section of the book. And I think that it talks about the, because brand a lot of marketers and, and brands are tossing around the term authenticity a lot aren't they and i felt that some of the points you made in that section in particular were about how to be like your whole self as a brand almost as or as an organization right in 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 how you're communicating through your content and to be honest sometimes about making those mistakes so i, I thought that was i mean I've, you know, the whole book is, uh, is, is excellent. And, uh, but I, but I felt that vulnerability thing was, was a real differentiator really in terms of the way that uh, brands need to look at how they're messaging. They probably shy away from that a little bit. And, right. And right. Because I mean, as you said, so many organizations, so many brands fling mm-hmm. around terms. Mm-hmm. We fling around terms like authenticity and yeah. transparency, yeah. like confetti. Yeah. But Confetti doesn't build brands. Confetti doesn't build trust. Hard work does. And I think we can operationalize vulnerability by looking at how do we engage with greater transparency? What does it mean to be authentic in our communication and um, and narrow the gap between our our words and mission statements and whatnot and our actions. And that is tough for many organizations, especially right now, if they want to wade into Mm. issues around me too, or black lives matter or, or so many other social issues. It is hard work, but it is yeah. important work especially, if they want to bring their audience Yeah, closer. especially as there's such a risk with uh, some of the brands that have been exposed as, you know, the, the, the t- you put, put whatever you like in front of the word washing, right? Greenwashing, mm-hmm. woke washing, whatever it is. And, and, so, and you really need to be, you really, like you say, put in the work with something like that. You can't just tell a story. You need to be walking the walk with a lot of those issues, don't you? Right, right. Yeah. And I think... Um, 
there are definitely brands that are doing it well, mm. even as they make mistakes, mm. maybe because they first yeah. make mistakes, but it doesn't stop them yeah. from, from engaging around those issues. And I think it's, it is important for organizations to realize that it isn't just, it isn't just a nice thing to do uh-huh. or um, maybe a savvy thing to do to yeah. engage around different social issues. Yeah. It's also good business yeah. because if they do hope to connect with an audience mm-hmm. and, um, and engage in a community, yeah. then they cannot hold themselves separate from the issues yeah. that affect that community yeah. or audience. Yeah. I think some, but there's some of the challenge there and it's a bit like what we were saying at the beginning where you're identifying your tribe and sometimes identifying your tribe means that some people are going to disagree with you, right? They're just not your kind of people. And I think that's sometimes a challenge that brands have, isn't it? That if you're going, or if you differentiate yourself in any, any kind of way in order to be different, you're not like others and therefore there will be people that don't like mm-hmm. what you've done. And it's having that, Doing that in a in a considered way, right, and be ready for that. I think is that is that a challenge your clients have is uh, to to kind of be considered about the the social issues. Yeah, in well, really to, to really embrace that differentiation and to go out a little bit on a limb from the usual blah 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 that's said in their industry and and and, and identify themselves as different either through social issues or with differentiating their stories or by being vulnerable or some of the other things you talk about in the book. I think for so many, um, for so many organizations, they are grounded in industries Mm. that do face struggles around, I shouldn't say that, that hides it in the passive voice. They are embroiled in industries that perpetuate certain problems. Mm -hmm. It isn't they are embroiled in them. They Mm. perpetuate those Mm -hmm. problems. And I think smart organizations are able to wrangle with those issues in a realistic and mature way. And that means rather than hiding away from them or pretending that the issues that are external to the company don't also affect the company, but, um, but by acknowledging problems and saying, this is a problem in the world. It is a problem here too. Here's what we're going to do about it. And I think that we can look back over the past 20 years and find some good examples of that. I think it was in, um, around 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. where uh, Adidas published the first corporate social responsibility report in the footwear industry to yeah. say that we are in an industry that doesn't do right mm-hmm. by the environment, that doesn't always do right by how we use labor in yeah. around the world yeah. and in global labor relations. We don't always do right. Here is what our organization doesn't do right. And here's how we're going to start to try to be better. Yeah. Now, publishing that report is an investment in yeah. transparency. Doing the work to improve things mm-hmm. is an investment in authenticity. Mm-hmm. And publishing that report almost 20 years ago, that did not fix all the problems in their company or in the industry. Yeah. But it put a stake in the ground to say, this is a problem that we see everybody else does too. Let's yeah. start talking about it and let's start working on it. Yeah. And it caused many of their competitors to look to them as an example and to also say, yeah. we need to change things too. Yeah, and yeah. bit by bit, that's an industry that has been improving. Yeah. And then you identify yourself as a leader, don't you? And, um, and, and you, you, and, and, and also, I mean, I'd love to talk to you. I've just realized the time, but I mean, this is absolutely fascinating. And, um, uh, because it's about the contribution to the culture that we make as marketers, isn't it? And some of the changes that we can do. 
uh, and by embracing some of these things, we contribute to, to, to the culture. And I think that's a fascinating topic. Um, but I'm going to have to get to the uh, last question. Uh, which is uh, we have a regular feature on Rockstar CMO, which we call the swimming pool, our portal to marketing hell for all the bullshit snake oil and overhyped trends. And like many rock stars, we like chucking things in there. What would you chuck in our Rockstar CMO swimming pool? I'm going to call out a few things that I think are, are points <laughs> in a bigger trend, if I might. Yes, you may. <laughs> it comes a, a wave in that swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> And that would be, I think, within marketing and within um, kind of our, our broader industry, yeah. we clamor on and cling on to new technologies and new platforms, <laughs> whether it is headless CMFs or design systems. We, we cling on to these things mm-hmm. and say, this will be what makes our organization communicate more consistently. Yeah. This will be the thing that, that saves our marketing. Yeah. And I despise that approach because <laughs> I think that those technologies, those techniques, those platforms yeah. are wonderful. But we've never had a problem with technology. We've never had a problem with hardware. Mm-hmm. When when our work is, deals with content, mm-hmm. our problems are people problems. Our problems are cultural. Mm-hmm. And a new CMS does not fix a broken publishing culture. Yeah. Uh, a new design system does not fix problems of of consistency and cohesion within your publishing culture. Yeah. So I think, yeah, my problem is with uh, the thrall to technology that forgets that it's people that make content. It's people that use the technology. If you work with content, you need to work with the people around yeah, the content. That's so that's good. My that is so good. I'm I'm trying to restrain myself from laughing through your response there because uh, absolutely. And so many times we have we have we have great marketers on the show, and they they say the same thing that technology is not going to solve anything. It's a people process thing that you need to get figured out, and technology can enable that, but it isn't the answer to the question. That's fantastic. Thank you, Margot. So um, <laughs> we we've we've gone a little bit over time as well I'm fascinating conversation thank you and I absolutely recommend your book I really enjoyed reading it thank you very much where can people I mean I know where I found it where can folks find find your book it's on Amazon and all the other good places right Exactly. Yeah, you can find trustworthy everywhere books are sold. And um, certainly the the big behemoth that you just mentioned, I invite folks to, to go there, review it and yeah. whatnot, um, or find it from the, the local bookstore, the, the retailer mm-hmm. near you or through bookshop.org or IndieBound that'll connect you with, with a local bookstore to support yeah. as well, because yeah. that's where so many good conversations around, around yeah. content. Yeah, bookshop.org. Yeah, somebody put me onto bookshop.org. Oh, that's, that's a brilliant suggestion. So I'm going to say the title in, in full, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap by Margot Bloomstein. So go check that out. Um, and for you, Margot, uh, when people spin the dial on the interwebs, where might they find you? You can find me on Twitter, usually, mm-hmm. at, at mbloomstein, um, as well as find me at appropriateinc.com slash trustworthy. Excellent. And I will include all the links to you, the book, uh, which I very much enjoyed, in the show notes. Thank you very much, Margaret. Thank you. Cheers.
Thank you, Margot. Really enjoyed that conversation. And this idea of voice, volume and vulnerability in building brand trust. I think we'll be dipping into her book in future episodes and I hope she comes back. Let me know what you think. Right, it's that time of the week. It's Friday evening and time to find out where my friend and content marketing guru, Robert Rose, would like to transport us to for a marketing thought and a cocktail in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar. Good evening, Robert. What are you drinking? Oh, hello, my friend, and welcome hello. to the bar. <laughs> um, you know, you've had some, you know, you've had some familiar guests on your show the last uh, few weeks. I've, uh, it's been, it's you know, the way you and I record this, I don't often get to hear the guests before they actually go live. So, yeah. um, you know, this is, uh, it's nice. It's been really, it's been really good. But it's good to see you Thank in you. the bar. Um, yes. What we're drinking tonight uh, is, well, you know, again, I'm going to assume that in your wonderful home of the UK that it's it's classically gray and cold, um, <laughs> but it's been hot here. It's been really hot and summertime has arrived early wow. here in Southern California mm -hmm. and there is no drink that is more classic to Southern California um, than the classic traditional margarita. So mm. that's what we have tonight to drink is a classic homemade, you know, margarita that nice. is, so the classic homemade margarita, you've got two parts lime juice, mm -hmm. you've got one part lemon juice, right. and then I don't use real sugar because I don't appreciate headaches or hangovers, mm. <laughs> but, uh, or the weight gain. Um, so I use birch sugar. So that's, that's a special sort of, um, you know, it's the, it's the kind of sugar that is actually good for diabetics and that sort of things. All right. Um, birch sugar is great for this. And so it's a table, a good tablespoon of birch sugar in there to make your margarita mix. And then of course your favorite, uh, reposado tequila. Nice. And so, and then whether you have a salt rim glass or a regular glass, um, that's uh, that's up to you, but um, that's that's our classic margarita tonight. Sounds it, and of course uh, for Cinco de Mayo this week, wasn't it? That's right. That, oh, indeed, yeah. very good for you. Yes, indeed, yeah, yeah. Cinco de Mayo was this week, and yeah. um, which a lot of people think it's the Independence Day. It's not the Independence Day of of Mexico, um, but um, there you go. Oh, right. We just think of it as Cinco de Mayo and um, we kind of celebrate in our house from our time of living in the US. And I think we've talked about my enjoyment of Mexican food and, and Mexican beer. And uh, so anyway, I'm going to pop some ice in a glass and then look upon my vast desktop bar to see how I can make such a fine drink. Um, right. And I'm going to start with... Um, some Bombay Sapphire Gin. That's a bit like ah, uh, yes. I think we've disguised, haven't we? So Which, I'm well, yes, that you know, you mix that with some Marg mix, and you have kind of a weird margarita, but not, not, nonetheless. Yes, I don't have any Marg mix. I only have. Uh, oh, I can't get this open. I only have. <laughs> I don't have any Marg mix. <laughs> I only have cucumber tonic water unfortunately ah. on my desk so a little bit but of that if you add i'm going to assume that that is a lime uh or some sort of citrus flavored tonic mm. no i could lie because this is the joy of radio 
Okay. It's cucumber tonic water. (laughs) That's not, that's not going to go well with a margarita, but yeah, go ahead. No. So I'll, um, I'll give this a taste, Robert. All right. Mm. Very nice. What did you call it? I call that a margarita is what I call that. (laughs) It's absolutely delicious. I could drink one of these every week. (laughs) I, I, I think, I think you probably shall. Yeah. And where um, where are we going to be drinking these fine drinks? Well, you know, it's hot here in Southern California, but I think um, we have to, we have to, you know, I mean, it, it, we're going to spend Cinco de Mayo here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, my initial reaction is to say somewhere here in Southern California, but here's the thing. You can get good Mexican food here in California. You can, it's, you can, but you will not get better Tex-Mex or Mexican food than you will in Texas. So I think we need to take a trip to Texas for this. Uh, And so there are some amazing places in my, uh, in my hometown of Mm -hmm. Dallas, uh, Texas. Um, But uh, rather than go to Dallas, I think we're going to head to Austin and just outside of Austin, there are a few Tex-Mex places uh, where we can go and have a good classic margarita uh, and uh, and and chat about life. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I love Austin. I've been to Austin. So for a change, somewhere somewhere that I've been to too. Um, and uh, and so we're having this lovely chat about life. And and Austin's a wonderful town. Um, and over the top of all the music that I'm sure that we'd be listening to there, uh, what we'll be chatting about this week. You know, I think what's on my mind is something that I was talking about with my friend Joe on on my podcast, um, which is, you know, we've been doing this content thing and and in marketing for, you know, many of us uh, for two decades, but um, but but certainly in earnest, let's call it for at least, you know, five years, if not, you know, going on 10 years. And you know, the, the funny thing is I'm starting to notice, you know, you ever read the book, the classic book, Good to Great uh, by yeah. Jim Collins? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic, wonderful business book. And and mm-hmm. in that book, he talks a lot about the idea of going good to great and mm-hmm. the time that it takes. And the interesting thing to me and the, what's on my mind as I've been thinking about this is this idea of how long sometimes we have to be at something before to be considered revolutionary change, right? You know, so I'll, I'll give you an example of this, right? We, we, we think of the highway system, right? And, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not familiar with the highway system in the UK or, or Europe, but um, here in the US anyway, it really got started in the mid 50s. And when the highway system, which is largely considered this huge revolutionary change to the way that the economy was, you know, powered in the U.S. and all of that kind of stuff, you know, you can track back and you can look at what really happened in the course of almost 10 years, five years to, you know, hundreds, thousands of laws and failed projects and minimal efforts going all the way back to the 1900s. 
and and it's the same with sort so, sort of the moonshot, right? The moon, the landing on the moon. Yeah. You know, if you look at the big, huge, audacious goal of going to the moon, well, it, that wasn't just something that happened from 1960 to 19, you know, the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. That was something that was small, incremental, minimal changes that led up to that for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And the the lesson i think to get to the point is sort of <laughs> when we're trying to drive big change in our business we often think about it in this sort of revolutionary thing you know this breakthrough yeah. campaign or this big yeah. idea and this viral big bang thing that's going to happen and the thought of this kind of change gets to be overwhelming and, you know, like we proclaim, hey, we're going to the moon. And but we don't even right now have the concept of flight, much less, you know, <laughs> doing that. Right. Yes. And so the key is, is that if you look at successful content creators, media mm-hmm. creators, the ones that are truly successful today, whether it's newspapers, magazines, TV shows, movies, novels, they don't think in that way. They mm-hmm. don't think in that big bang viral one and done. They just produce hour by hour, day by day, Mm. week by Mm. week, creating the most valuable story products they can. Mm. And it's really only in hindsight when you look at the body of work that you go, that's revolutionary. That's big. And if you even look at some of the things that we talk about at all the conferences, right? The Red Bulls, the Craft, the HubSpots, all these sort of like, wow, that's the quintessential content story right there. Yeah. None of them were overnight successes. All of them yeah. had multiple failures and multiple small things going yeah. for years before they sort of became recognized as the revolutionaries that they that they were. And yeah. that's that's sort of what's on my mind. Yeah, that's like, I mean, you hear that about bands, don't you, where they're, they're described as an overnight success, where they've been sort of touring and gigging and sleeping in vans for years before they got that sudden you know, they, they, they suddenly found a bigger audience. And uh, and that's the sort of thing that we content creators need to do, right? Is spend those years sleeping in the van <laughs> and building up to, you know, building building our act, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, and the funny thing is, is that, and this is the thing that we talked about a little bit that Joe and I talked about on on, on our podcast was, how little patience business has for that these days, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, in other words, we're so short-term focused Yeah. In, in so many ways, you know, with, and much of this has to do with quarterly performance or, you know, yeah. half year performance or even yearly performance that it's really hard to invest in something that we know isn't going to pay off yeah. in, you know, in, in a quarter, right? Yeah. And I mean, I'll give you a perfect example of this. We we were just working with a big company mm-hmm. that is, you know, Fortune 500 company. So they're a public company and they have, you know, they have to do quarterly, you know, announcements. Yeah. And they're doing something that is truly transformational. They're building an in-house agency and the in-house and driven by content, right? So yeah. powered by content, this in-house agency is going to completely transform the way that all of their brands, they're a house of brands, does content, e-commerce, uh, mm-hmm. build community and do owned media. And it's, so it's a multi-million dollar investment hiring hundreds of people over the course of, you know, multiple years. And 
the what is slowing the project is that they find it hard to make a business case that will show to the public markets that they're investing in something that isn't completely right. upsetting their profitability in any one quarter. And of course, this is something, this kind of investment, this transformation is something yeah. that will take multiple quarters, if not, you know, multiple years. And the difficulty in making a project like this work isn't doing the work. It's actually doing the work at a cadence that doesn't upset the quarterly results. Yeah. And that's a shame, right? Because at a much smaller level, when we do these big projects, these big ideas, we have to do them in such a, a way that doesn't upset, you know, all of the results that we're doing. You know, it's like, it's almost yeah. like, you know, can we be innovation? You know, can we be innovative? Well, yeah, go ahead and be innovative, you know, as long as it doesn't break anything. Yeah. So it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's a challenge. Isn't it? So what advice do you give when, when people are in that situation? I mean, do you need to, how, I mean, I guess you demonstrate the small wins, right? Or, or how, do you, how do you move forward with something like that? You know, one step at a time, right? Mm. I mean, you know, I, I, the, the lesson for me when I look at it and I, and, you know, and, and, and it was this, you know, it, the, what dawned on me was, you know, is that when you look at sort of the media companies, um, you know, I think of Marvel, right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how Marvel, you know, has gone from being, you know, I mean, let's be honest in the eighties, nineties, even early two thousands, if you weren't a comic book geek, you yeah. didn't really understand what Marvel did. You know, yeah. I mean, you didn't really know who Iron Man was. You didn't really know who Thor was. You didn't really, you know, like people like my wife and, you know, and, yeah. and people who weren't comic book fans, they didn't really understand that whole universe. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that as they've started to build, you know, you know, slowly a, you know, a, a step-by-step big universe of characters and created so much value in what they did. They had the patience to do it slowly over time, develop those things, bring it to a wider audience, use the movies to be able to do that. And to me, that's just so much focus on the work instead of just trying to exploit something in a, in a wide way yeah. that it's so much more valuable today than it would have been if they had done the, the ladder there, right? If they had yeah. just tried to exploit it for, for one thing. And when I see the difference between how Disney and Marvel have created value and you look at it in comparison to, some, you know, I mean, just in direct comparison to the way that Warner Brothers has treated the DC properties, mm -hmm. it's just a stark difference, right? Yep. I mean, forgive yeah. the pun, but, um, yeah. you know, you know, that's, that's, yeah, yeah. it's interesting to me. So yeah. do the work. Do the do the work is the is the is the lesson <laughs> is the message. That's excellent, and um, so that's um, uh, we're, we're up to time. What's um, um, and where can people find other thoughts such as this from you, Mister Rose? Well, I hear there's this podcast called uh, <laughs> CMO Rockstar or something like that. Um, you know. But you the, did you also know, mention the um, talk, well. It's, yeah. But here's the thing: you talk about somebody who's doing the work. You, my friend, are doing the work. <laughs> um, and so, you know, yeah, where our little our little hole on the web is contentadvisory.net, which is where we do all of our you know wonderful work with our clients and and um, and espouse ideas like this and debate the intellectual 
uh, prowess of DC versus Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> and also I should mention, because you did mention that, that you do the blog, the podcast with uh, Joe Polizzi, this old Martin, which I'm quite very happy to promote and, and, and distract our listeners with. And if- it's our wonderful, yeah, it's two, it's literally just two knuckleheads talking about, you know, well, these days, a lot of NFTs and, and, uh, <laughs> and media companies and uh, social audio and all those kinds of things. Yeah, and, another and, NFT rent this week. Anyway, yeah, in, if- in, <laughs> increasingly, it's basically, you know, the, the two old guys from the Muppets arguing about, you know, <laughs> about the future of <laughs> cryptocurrency. But, you know, that's that's yet another story. All right. And when they spin the dial on the interwebs and they want to actually hear from you, where would they find you? Uh, you can find me online on Twitter at uh, Robert underscore Rose and on LinkedIn, wherever you find your LinkedIn things. Splendid. Thank you very much, sir. And will I see you in the bar next week? You will, of course, indeed. I look forward to it. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Robert. Excellent advice. Going good to great takes time and we need to put in the work. So that's a wrap on episode 61 of the Rockstar CMO Effing Marketing Podcast. Thanks again to David, Margot and Robert. I really appreciate their time. So please check out the show notes, click their links, follow them and take a look at their work. You can find the show notes at rockstarcmo.fm where you can also find all our previous episodes. But most of all, thank you for dropping a dime into your podcasting jukebox, selecting our track and driving along with us. Does the world need another effing marketing podcast? Let me know what you think. Please leave a rating, review and subscribe or just keep listening. I'm glad you're here. Next week, Jeff is back. I'm chatting to Darren Guanaccia, Senior Vice President of Product at Hootsuite. And again, I'll join Robert Rose in our virtual Rockstar CMO bar. Until then, I've been your host, Ian Truscott, and I hope you'll again join us next week here at Rockstar CMO. FM. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.